why are there still so many things that we can't really talk about within the Black experience, especially the Black performed experience? Because on some level, as crude as it is, slavery was performance. That's all it could be. Welcome to Medium Rotation, a new podcast from Triple Canopy. I'm Alexander Provan, the editor of the magazine. And I'm Nikita Gale, an artist living in L.A. and a longtime co-conspirator. Nikita and I are hosting the first season of the podcast, Omni Audience, which asks how we understand ourselves and others through listening. In six episodes, we're examining the forces that shape how and to whom we listen and what the obstacles to listening reveal about our society. In this episode, Holy Ghosts, we're joined by Harmony Holiday, a writer, dancer, and archivist who lives in Los Angeles. Harmony's work, including an essay published last year in Triple Canopy, deals with the histories and traumas that can be heard in the performances of Black artists, especially musicians. So we're going to begin by talking about some of those artists, Albert Eiler, Dave Chappelle, Kanye West, for instance, and how they try to find forms of expression and of being that are chosen by them. Then we'll cut to my conversation with Harmony. Due to the pandemic, uh, Harmony recorded herself at home, so please excuse the sound quality. And after we hear from Harmony, Alex and I will return to talk and listen for a few more minutes. So to start, what do we mean when we talk about listening? When we talk about listening, we're generally talking about listening to what people are saying or to the notes they're playing or singing, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about being attentive to the sounds that people are making. But so much of communication, whether that's in speech or in music, has to do with what isn't said, with the notes that aren't played, and with expressions that go beyond speech, because speech, obviously, is not always adequate. Yeah, so when we talk about listening, we're also talking about being attentive to the gaps between words, the utterances that exceed language, the sounds that challenge us to hear things differently, to hear what we don't yet or don't immediately understand. Yeah, and that's very abstract, of course. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to listen to what you can't make sense of? Or what does it mean to listen for silence? Well, that's the crux of Harmony's work, right? Yeah. I think one answer is that listening involves seeking out voices that have been silenced or the kinds of speech that have been suppressed. It also means being open to sounds that make you expand your sense of what's comprehensible or what's communicable, given the conventions that you're used to. The ones that I'm used to? Or like someone like you. (laughs) (laughs) A communicator like me, more or less. Right. So one of the examples is Linda Sherrick's incredibly epic track with Sonny Sherrick, Black Woman. I remember the first time hearing the song, I was just like, what the fuck am I listening to? This is the greatest thing I've ever... It seems like it's like a six-minute-long refusal of, of language, right? Yeah. I feel like what you're hearing for six minutes is her breaking free from the constraints of language and communicating mm-hmm. something that she couldn't otherwise communicate while Sonny Sherrick just shreds. But 
I think it's also the kind of singing that otherwise you expect to come between verses or at the mm-hmm. end of a song. Right. But she's she's taken like that like the style of singing that's usually supplementary and turn that into the content of what she's communicating. Yeah, like supplementary, particularly in genres that are associated with black music, like the improvisational oohs and ahs, or that kind of like when you get really into the song and you just go outside of language. Yeah, and Harmony's thinking about this, about the wordless scream, about singing that departs from language as a response to collective and personal trauma. She's also interested in how black musicians perform for white audiences, which, of course, is a dynamic that extends beyond music. In her Triple Canopy essay, The Black Catatonic Scream, Harmony talks about how musicians, from her father to Thelonious Monk, are trying to find a language that hasn't been imposed on them, that isn't an artifact of subjugation, and, maybe, that provides a path to emancipation. Yeah, there's so much incredible music that attempts to give form to what is unspeakable, right? And I mean, I hesitate to only think of it along lines of trauma because it's also like on the other end, it's like there's music and other forms of expression that attempt to give form to like the most ecstatic, pleasurable experiences, right? That sort of exceed language. Yeah, to a to a desire or longing for another world, another language, another another life. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much music that seeks a language or form of expression other than one that's been imposed upon us. Yeah, and also it's not just language that's being demolished. It's the whole world in which that language is situated. Yeah, there are also two contemporary figures I think about quite a bit, which is, you know, Dave Chappelle and, dare I say it, Kanye West. Dave Chappelle notoriously disappeared for several years. I think his account was that one night he was performing a show and he was making some like racy jokes. And there were two white guys in the front row who were laughing just a little bit too hard. And he really big, it was like, it was a moment where he started to question who are these jokes for exactly? Because it's like, he is a performer and his community are getting one thing out of the joke. But then there's this much broader public that's also taking in this content. And so he like stopped performing for a while. But then there's Kanye and his St. Pablo tour stage, which is essentially, it's just like a giant wall that he hides behind as he floats above the audience. So there's like this dynamic where You know, at the point at which you are physically the closest to Kanye, it's also the point at which you have the least access to his image. And can he see the audience? Yeah, he can see the audience. He's in command. It's a really striking piece. I think it's like one of the most incredible sculptures of the 21st century. Harmony ties these silences and sounds to the pressure put on Black musicians, especially to perform in a way that's legible and pleasing 
to particular and generally white audiences. Yeah, like, I hate to bring up Kanye again, but there's this moment in, uh, I think the song is Father Stretch My Hands, part one. He's he's like rapping about, uh, it's like a relationship or something. And there's this moment that I can't even, it's just like he goes into this convulsive, just like inability to articulate what he's trying to say. He's like smacking his lips and he's like, I don't even want to talk about it. It's one of my like favorite Kanye moments because it's just such a, a lack of articulation, but it's so precise. And this is something that's very common in hip hop music, like the uh, or like the utterance that is not, that is like non-linguistic. Which, which Kanye names. Like, I mean, yeah. I think that, that's also what's remarkable is to do that and then to take a step back and name what you're doing. Right. And then go back into the lyrics. Yeah. And I mean, as Harmony points out, what happened to her father has happened to countless Black performers. Like Kanye. Yeah, exactly. Like Kanye. And the typical explanation is mental illness, something that Kanye has been very vocal about, um, meaning that there's something wrong with them as individuals, or at least that's the... the That's like the diagnostic language that's used, and that's also like what the publicists say. Yeah, yeah. And that language, that narrative, conceals the role of the collective trauma of slavery and oppression and sort of being consistently placed into institutions that are not designed to actually allow you to fully or efficiently articulate yourself in the first place. And so to attend to the sounds and silences of these performers is to recognize that struggle and to understand oneself in relationship to that history. And I guess that brings us to Harmony's dad. Yeah. And I mean, you and Harmony talk about her dad, Jimmy Holiday, right? Whom she's often written about as someone who struggled with this dynamic, um, which ultimately contributed to him having a breakdown. And Jimmy Holiday was a singer who was born in Mississippi. He grew up in poverty and struggled to make a name for himself on the soul circuit in the 60s. And this was just before moving to L.A. and writing songs for Ray Charles, Bobby Womack, James Brown, and Doris Duke. Yeah, and Harmony describes him as the illiterate child of sharecroppers. He ended up achieving success in a world that was totally, like, unimaginably different from the one he'd come from, uh, the L.A. music industry of the 1970s. To survive and then later to continue to succeed as a songwriter and as a player in the music industry, he was always performing for a white audience, while also trying to make sure that he wasn't being taken advantage of. So when I talked to Harmony, she described how challenging and exhausting this was and how he eventually had a psychotic break and went silent or lost his language. Because of her father's experience, Harmony started to think about speechlessness as a tactic and even as a refusal to perform, not only as a manifestation of mental illness or disordered mind.
Here's my conversation with Harmony Holiday. Your father was a soul singer who moved to L.A. to perform and record. Yes. When, when did he move to L.A. and how did he end up there? He went to New Orleans when he was super young. He was born in 1934 and then worked a bit in Chicago. He basically worked his way west, kind of like the musician version of the Great Migration that a lot of musicians did from the South, the Deep South. And I imagine he got to L.A. around the 70s. The first thing he did when he got there, he was determined to work with Ray Charles. And so he went to what was called um, Tangerine Records, where Ray Charles had his headquarters. With his demo, he was wearing his like Southern outfit that he wore. He kind of had a uniform of a Stetson and cowboy boots and big buckle and he was just like a wild, wild west Negro. <laughs> and this is this was his his like daily his daily uniform. That was his daily. He was a black cowboy, like to the core. And so he rolled up to Ray Charles' office in this with his demo and just sat there for a week. And by Friday, he had been sitting there eight hours a day the whole week. Ray Charles was like, "Is he still out there?" let that nigga in. And then they became homies. And that was sort of the start of his like LA career. And they start, you know, my dad wrote a bunch of Ray Charles songs. He ended up doing A&R for some different people. And then he ended up, my dad ended up writing some of his hits in LA like put a love in your heart and things like that that made him a bigger songwriting name because he had come in as a singer but quickly realized that you know you get robbed as a black singer especially in the south yeah. in the songwriting though he oddly enough couldn't write like he wasn't trained in school he was picking cotton during his school age years and i somehow deliberately he basically fell in love with white women who would transcribe his music and so that was how his songwriting ended up happening. It's like, that's a wild hustle, you know? <laughs> yeah, to, like, to know to do that or mm-hmm. to, um, to be able to navigate that world and make that happen is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. With that much intention of, I mean, during a time when so many people, the whole story from that era is like Black people who don't own their music and without even being able to read his contracts, he managed to escape some of that. Also by, you know, through violence. I mean, that part of his cowboy thing was that he would fuck some people up if he had to and it wasn't a game like he was legendary for beating up engineers he thought were robbing him or weird shady people which is why he also got into A&R I think because he was tough enough (laughs) how many engineers do you have to beat up to get into A&R at that point I don't to be a black man in A&R probably all of them honestly (laughs) (laughs) What, what effect did working and performing in that world ultimately have on him I think, yeah, the strange thing about that is like the whole time it's traumatic, but you're just acting through it. And, you know, kind of you get into a routine where the mundane daily trauma of playing a certain role is pushed back and pushed back. And then ultimately something causes you to snap because it's just too much stress, especially I think, you know, people telling you you're poor, you might not even know you're poor in the deep South, but going from that life to a Los Angeles life in a country Mm -hmm. that's still super racist and, you know, just all the acting you have to do. And I guess, you know, it's it's possible not to to sense the violence that's being done to you until it's too late Mm -hmm. or not to sense that, 
you know, it's violence being done to you as opposed to something you're doing to yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So there's shame, there's blame, there's every paranoia, you know, you can't trust anyone and being so reliant on women to write down your, to transcribe your music, just having just all that powerlessness mixed with power. So he, I mean, he was into his hobbies were like martial arts and things like he would teach my sister how to uh, chop wood with her hand or try to, and like, he was, he was serious about his self-defense. Like it wasn't a game. My sister tells me all these stories. Like they would have dinner with the gun on the table just in case. So what, what happened when he snapped or, or how did he snap exactly? So the combination of the medical industry trying to medicate him with, um, in a similar way they do like testing stuff out on black men, black people with his already natural imbalances or imbalances that were caused and egged on by the society he was in. Yeah. Where it's like any, any combination of pharmaceuticals to keep you performing reliably. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, ultimately that compounded into a period of complete catatonia and speechlessness and a psychic break. It was just a lot. And ultimately he had one manic episode that led to him being hospitalized. So he, he had a lot of guns, obviously, because he was a Negro cowboy and he (laughs) strapped them on and went knocking on people's doors saying the Nazis are coming and I'll protect you. You know, obviously he thought that the Nazis were coming for real. Beverly Wood was this um, predominantly Jewish neighborhood. I think it still is. And from what my sister tells me, like my dad and OJ Simpson were like the only Negroes in the neighborhood. (laughs) And I guess they had like the same car and they would drive by each other in their little like red Corvette or whatever they had. (laughs) And he was arrested basically given like, I think what's called a 5150 where you're taken to the hospital. Kind of like how they did Kanye and given a bunch of drugs. And after that, that was sort of, I think when he was never the same. Do you think about his history in relation to the the pressures that were put on him to perform in a certain way, not not just in music, obviously, but as a person in this world? Yeah, and I think it was just a lot. The trajectory of that life is literally very bipolar. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at Jimi Hendrix or a lot of people were having these psychic breaks and it was all coded in medical language. Toward the end of his life, he was in jail and started speaking in these tongues or recounting stories in a made-up tribal language. And to me, that's sort of like a... It's like this full circle thing, going from being sort of robbed of language, yet working with it your whole life, to trying so hard to get outside of it to something that feels more native to you. And that definitely got me into thinking about how people talk about other figures like this. Like Monk was one who really stuck out to me because his family talked similarly about how he, there weren't really mentions of like major manic episodes, but kind of he would stay up all the time doing work and not talk to anyone in the house for days. He would be hospitalized for different episodes and then not talk for a while, but be making music. 
the more I saw it come up in other people besides my father, the more I started thinking about just thinking about it more as a tactic. I mean, this Western world we live in is always jumping to calling things disordered that don't fit its narratives. And so I started thinking like, what in this so-called disordered behavior is transformative and necessary. Yeah, and like what like what here isn't actually pathology or abjection or like a, like a loss of ability, but rather like a manifestation of some other desire or some other mm-hmm. some other ability or form of expression. Totally. And just that like refusal, like Richard Pryor turning away from the stage or people refusing to perform in the ways that they've been socialized into performing, even when that's their job. Yeah, but that's and that's that's a performance too, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that kept coming up was just this idea of how we're always looking at black people as performant, like everything someone black who we covet does becomes part of their performance and subsumed into it, whether they intended it or not. How did you start thinking about speechlessness in terms of the history of colonialism? That was just sort of like scanning, looking for a kind of origin story of where, why this felt like a coded thing into, you know, bodies of Black people and thinking about, okay, well, what would that entail? I guess I kind of physically put myself in that position. Let's say you've been captured and you're underneath some ship and you're being taken somewhere and no one necessarily speaks the same language because you're just capturing different tribes, whoever, putting them all together. So there's that first, like, you're with a bunch of people who don't speak the same language. So you're communicating in wails and moans and, you know, everyone's just like screaming and it's funky. So imagining like those people being put into that kind of like childlike state where you kind of know what's going on is fucked up, but you just, how do you say it? You can't even communicate, you know? And, and like, gradually coming to understand that the whole point is for you to remain in that childlike state. Exactly. Where, and and yeah. to continue to not have the language to understand or articulate what you're experiencing, right? Absolutely, to the point where it's illegal to teach slaves to learn to read, illegal to be reading, illegal, you know, to do anything but worship white Jesus, basically, in the little outhouse churches. And so the word mafa became important to me because I feel like there's this blunted edge to the to how we talk about slavery in the West, where it's just like this amorphous... Because it's like, or it's a history textbook chapter? Exactly. It's kind of mechanized. And so the thinking about this was the first time I did that exercise of like, well, wait, what, what the hell was it? Because I told you what it was in like first grade. But like, imagine your body in that position like what really was that and then you still don't know even when you're trying to imagine that but it's this missing piece and understanding your whole history in a sense you know what i mean for me to understand my own father who was a sharecropper one leg away from being a slave basically whose grandmother was a slave you know like what is passed down and why why are there still so many things that we can't really talk about within the Black experience, especially the Black 
performed experience because on some level, as crude as it is, slavery was performance. That's all it could be. You know what I mean? Black people were having to perform, especially the politeness and subservience that was required. And so there's so much that you don't know that you'll never know about black slaves because they were putting, they were smiling and dancing and picking to not get killed. So it's like, of course they weren't being themselves, you know, in the accounts that we have, the closest we get to knowing anything is slave narratives. And even then you've lost a whole series of generations of the black personality. And so it's almost like as it's reloading, I feel like you find people like Monk and like my father and everyone, you know, we see who's black in the public eye trying to reimagine their personality as a free person. Mm -hmm. And then a significant question in your work is where to look for that or how to hear that, right? And so you Mm -hmm. hear it in, in your father's singing in Richard Pryor turning his back to the audience, in James Brown's screams, and in, in John Coltrane's horn playing, for instance. Yeah, with James Brown's scream, it kind of fits into that array of silences because it silences everything around it. So it creates a catatonia in the audience, and it's I guess it's like a reflexive version of what I'm talking about, but it also comes from this deep pre-linguistic, post-linguistic, there's no word for that. It's the wordless vocal times a thousand. Yeah, and it, and it's, does it seem like a rebellion against the pressure to articulate one's experience through language, through like a ready-made vocabulary? Absolutely. Yes. And also an example of Black men and women becoming instruments. I mean, you hear it with Billie Holiday a bit when she sings like Lester Young plays the horn. Wouldn't that be heaven, a heaven just the voice is more than a vessel to regurgitate the alphabet that we can kind of instrumentalize the voice and take it beyond spoken language. That's so evident in a lot of the music around the Black arts movement and these Pan-African gatherings in the 60s and 70s. We want a Black poem and a Black world. Let the world be a Black poem. And let all black people speak this poem silently aloud. Like to me, at least, one thing that free jazz does is free the voice to be an instrument and mm-hmm. find other yes. other languages or other other modes of expression mm-hmm. where the meaning isn't prepackaged and you're not regurgitating what's already understood. Yeah, you know, it all kind of figurates around searching for the authentic personality that obviously doesn't begin in language. It begins in attitudes and sensations and feelings that then come through the language. I feel like free jazz and the poetry of the Black Arts Movement kind of stutter their way toward what that personality yearns to be, in a sense. I mean, you hear deep, like, yearning 
in a lot of free jazz, if you, Albert Eiler especially, or, you know, it does pitch towards celebration, but a lot of it is just like clearing up old thought forms, like literally with those frequencies. So some of them have to be a bit ugly beauty style, as Monk would say. Yeah. And they're like tearing through the tones. Exactly. Um, And pushing toward a new, pushing toward a new way, really, you know, and I think it's interesting if you see like free jazz as this like rupture from like bebop, which was still a bit minstrelized, if you want to be brutally honest, you know, it's self-conscious in the sense that it knows it needs the white audience to um, be on its side. Whereas free jazz is like, fuck y'all. If you don't like it, (laughs) better go find something else. But then in a way... Yeah, but also it's like, it's all about like the ecstasy of getting to that place beyond language or beyond the language you know is also agony, right? Yes. It's not easy. It's not cool. It's... Yeah. It's... It comes from a really desperate place. Totally. Yeah, you hear people playing frequencies that have no like antecedent in trying to be popular, which is so refreshing. I mean, that's why I love that music. But then I feel like in a way it pushes toward like a further self-realization of Black culture. Then you get like hip hop and somehow I feel like it does a kind of settling where then you get to a music that is like fun and chill again (laughs) on some levels, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like you don't have it's interesting, like there's no free hip hop. Right. Like no one's calling Albert Eiler and being like, Thanks, man, you did it. Uh, <laughs> right. Like we can finally move back to the chill zone. <laughs> yeah, right. We can go back to the minstrel now. We you played out all the yeah. <laughs> the circuits. Yeah. And like music has become like black music has become pretty normative, I would say. And some of that is like jazz, which is some of the most experimental black music being subsumed into the university. And given all this language, over-languaged in a way, and then some of it is just that Black people have become more normative. There's less people who grow up without mainstream influences, like just on the farm. Like I, like I said, I'm reading about Tina Turner, like growing up picking strawberries and cotton. Like that's how you get an original voice like hers. But now people are so up in the same web that you really don't hear it as much. Yeah, I mean, I think there's right, there's also like it's so easy to connect the like the most obvious commodified version of black music to the most obvious commodified cultural figures like mm-hmm. I'm always, like like tomorrow we're gonna start to see the op-eds about like kamala harris being the hip-hop vice president oh my god don't make yeah. me cry <laughs> this will turn me into albert eiler maybe that's the, the push we need that's what i'm saying like it's gonna like the op-eds are gonna produce a million albert eilers hopefully let's hope so I wonder if the pandemic puts new pressure on this question of of how to make sound out of silence, mm-hmm. how to turn this absence of communication or this loss of language into something that communicates, how to turn it into something that communicates more intentionally, more specifically, or more powerfully. Yeah. What I feel about this time and language is that people, because we're 
doing all this pretending that everything is the same for everyone aren't using language to describe like the memories that you're having on a daily basis. I think it's going to be important because it's such a collective trauma and trauma leads to loss of memory to remember the things that happen, like those micro things that happen a day that would never happen any other time besides 2020, 2021 pandemic time. This is a trauma that we don't understand as a trauma yet. That was Harmony Holiday. And now we're back. So, in Harmony's work and in our conversation, there's this fundamental question, which is, why is it so hard to talk about these things or to represent this trauma? And it's because you know, there, there isn't the language, there, yeah. there aren't the structures. Yeah, it's not meant to be recorded. And Harmony traces this back to MAFA, which is the Swahili word for the African Holocaust. And, of course, people are still living with that trauma and many other traumas piled on top. But specifically, that involves the loss of a native language, the compulsion to constantly perform to satisfy others, the inability to read or write, which is also the inability to fully express oneself or to represent oneself to others or even to make a record of oneself for posterity, like to know that your existence might be recognized at some future point by anyone. And the speechlessness that afflicts people like Harmony's father is a manifestation of this collective trauma. It's a consequence of not having the language to reckon with this experience. Right. Like I think about in Fred Moten's In the Break, where he quotes Glissant and this line about enslaved Africans in the new world screaming or like yelling into the night and how that sounded like noise to everyone else, but it was a way that they were making their presence known to one another. The question is, why aren't we all screaming all the time, given everything that's happening? Or why aren't you silent all the time? Yeah, why aren't we silent all the time? But also it's like silence is something that is either taken up as a, as a, as a moment of agency and refusal or silence as a as a political condition that's like imposed upon someone. And, you know, it might also encompass the refusal to be subjected to sound or the refusal to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to listen isn't necessarily to subject oneself to like any and all voices all the time. Right. Yeah. And silence can be like an effort to insulate yourself from from the noise, from from the speech and sounds of others. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of this book, Hush, Media and Sonic Self-Control by Mac Haygood. He he describes a like a 2014 ad for Beats headphones with Colin Kaepernick, who walks into the stadium with headphones on, like blasting music, basically to shut out the screams and jeers of a crowd that clearly despises him.
He's in control because he's warding off what he doesn't want to hear. He's creating this sonic space where he can exist as he wishes. So he's not screaming. Instead, he's silencing everyone else. Uh, but at the same time, it's a defensive maneuver, and he's silencing himself too. Mm-hmm. In the book, Haygood relates this ad to the story of Orpheus drowning out the lethal song of the sirens with his own music, which provides safe passage for the Argonauts. But it's also a kind of fantasy of freedom, right? As if freedom can be achieved only by insulating or isolating yourself. Right. You know, I, I can't not think about gender yeah. as well. Like the the danger or the threat of like the unrefined feminine voice. That can't be controlled. Right. Yeah. This is bringing me to Sylvia Winter, who writes about the codes that govern Western culture and alternatively, you know, the possibility of, as she says, coming into existence through the participation in the reconstruction or redefinition of sound and sound making activities. You know, it's kind of like we have to listen in order to facilitate and be part of that collective existence in order to communicate in a way that fosters agency for people and doesn't only enrich the platforms that are always soliciting and monetizing our expressions. Shut down Twitter. Don't shut down Twitter, shut down. Sorry, shut down the world. Shut down the world, (laughs) exactly. We have to start there. Thanks for listening to Medium Rotation. On the next episode, The Big Society will be joined by Dorika Shields, a writer and researcher who lives in London. We'll speak with Dorika about her oral history of Black experiences of the welfare state recently published by Triple Canopy. Dorika's work shows how, in Britain, liberal nostalgia for the glory days of the welfare state is premised on not listening to people who receive benefits and on upholding the colonial-era distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. With Dorika, we'll listen to Black people's accounts and analyses of their own lives. We'll talk about how, by doing so, they can combat shame, ensure survival strategies. Medium Rotation is presented by Triple Canopy, produced by Alexander Provan with Andrew Leland, and edited by Matt Frasica. Tashi Wada composed the theme music. Matt Malin acted as audio engineer and contributed additional music.